Good evening. Bells ring worldwide for Ukraine as Turkey says peace talks between Kiev and Russia are making progress. An opera about Emmett Till makes waves in New York. The mayor squares off with activists over videotaping cops and a former guerrilla fighter says Russia is wrong. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Sunday, March 20th, 2022. The bells of St. Paul's Cathedral in London rang for 15 minutes today, together with the bells of churches in Lvov and churches and cathedrals across Europe, including Paris, Cologne, Madrid, Vienna, and Berlin. The European Association of Cathedral Master Builders said churches from Norway to Malta and from Spain to Ukraine took part. Meanwhile, the war continued its brutal toll on Ukraine's civilian population, with 3.3 million refugees leaving Ukraine and 8 million internally displaced persons within a country of 41 million. The port city of Mariupol is facing imminent capture by Russian troops, suffering massive destruction after days of intense shelling. The violence comes with a faint whisper of hope, as Turkey's foreign minister says Russia and Ukraine are making progress in negotiations to halt the war, adding the two sides were close to an agreement. Turkey has been hosting peace talks since soon after the war began on February 24th with Russia's incursion, they call it a special military operation, into Ukraine. Turkey says it's ready to host the face-to-face meeting between Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky and Russian President Vladimir Putin. Turkey's foreign minister says we are working day and night for peace. In a speech today, President Zelensky called on Israel to take a stronger stand against Russia as he compared the invasion of his country to atrocities committed by Nazi Germany during World War II. He accused Russian President Putin of trying to carry out a permanent solution against Ukraine. Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has emerged as a key mediator between Russia and Ukraine, in part because Israel has good relations with both sides. In more news of Nazis and parallels between the war in Ukraine and World War II in Europe, prominent American politician, actor, and bodybuilder Arnold Schwarzenegger recorded a message addressed to My Russian Friends. In his message, the former California governor refers to his father, who was a Nazi soldier involved in the bloody siege of the Russian city then known as Leningrad. When my father arrived in Leningrad, he was all pumped up on the lies of his government. When he left Leningrad, He was broken, physically and mentally. He lived the rest of his life in pain, pain from a broken back, pain from the shrapnel that always reminded him of these terrible years, and pain from the guilt that he felt. This is not the war to defend Russia that your grandfathers or your great-grandfathers fought. This is an illegal war. Former California governor, bodybuilder, and action movie star Arnold Schwarzenegger In other international news, Yemen's Houthi rebels have unleashed a barrage of drone and missile attacks on Saudi Arabia, targeting a liquefied natural gas plant, water desalination plant, oil facility, and power station. 
The salvo marked the latest escalation in the war pitting Yemen against Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. The war has cost hundreds of thousands of lives, directly or indirectly, and displaced millions in what the United Nations has called the world's worst humanitarian crisis. On Wednesday, the UN says it was disappointed after a donor's conference raised only $1.3 billion, far short of the $4.3 billion target, another sign of the disparity in the response to the twin humanitarian disasters in Ukraine and Yemen. In national news, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, school officials released surveillance footage showing an off-duty police officer putting his knee on a 12-year-old girl's neck to restrain her. Kenosha officer Sean Getschow is shown pushing the girl's head into the ground and uses his knee on her neck for about half a minute before handcuffing her and walking her out of the cafeteria. Getschow resigned from the school district but is apparently still a police officer. And Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says today he hasn't made up his mind on whether to vote in support of Ketanji Brown-Jackson to succeed Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court. Her confirmation hearing is slated to begin tomorrow. If Jackson is confirmed, she will become the first black woman in U.S. history to serve on the high court. Closer to home. A petition to cancel a City University production of an opera about Emmett Till, written by a white woman, gained over 11,000 signatures as of today. The organizer of the petition wants to close the curtains on Emmett Till, a new American opera, at John Jay College's Gerald W. Lynch Theater next week. Emmett Till was 14 when he was a lynch for allegedly flirting with a white woman in Mississippi in 1955. His brutal murder became a rallying cry in the civil rights movement. The dramatic crescendo came on the decision of Till's mother, Elizabeth Till Mobley, to leave the casket open during her son's wake in Chicago, allowing viewers to see the aftermath of the beating Till received at the hands of the white men who abducted him. The play was written by Claire Cross, 83, and composed by Mary Watkins, who is black. The petition's author is John Jay student Maya Bishop. She writes, Claire Cross has creatively centered her white guilt by using this play to make the racially motivated brutal torture and murder of a 14-year-old child about her white self and her white feelings. The opera is being put on with the support of the 24-member Harlem Chamber Orchestra, part of a collection of professional musicians dedicated to bringing accessible and affordable music to Uptown and Harlem. The orchestra is conducted by Pulitzer Prize winning composer Tanya Leone. The publicist for the group is Nina Flowers. She says the opera isn't about the white woman through whose eyes the story is seen, but about Till's mother. It's really about his murder, the repercussions of that, or the the consequences from his murder in the trial. It features a lot of Mamie Till Mobley and her transformation from grieving mother to activist and how she moves forward to tell the world, I want the world to see what happened to my son. And so her decision to open the casket and her courage and the courage of the people who were in the courtroom and broke the Delta Code, which is when you know black people were not allowed to testify against white folks. Mm-hmm. It centers around a lot of that. The white school teacher has a piece in it, but I just wanted, because that's where we got here, because of that kind of a, a bad game of telephone on social media and people thinking that it's centered around the white school teacher, and it's not. The founder and executive director of the Harlem Chamber Players is Liz Player. She says she's worked on many productions about black history, but this is the first to cause controversy. We're a chamber music uh, Uh company, but we will partner um, with other organizations doing other productions. Like a year ago, we presented the world premiere of Tulsa 1921 by the renowned black composer Adolphus Hailstork. 
because we do want to bring this to the public and um, bring culturally relevant programs. We want to shine a light on the history that has been hidden from us. I grew up in South Jersey and went to a mostly white school, and I didn't even know about the Tulsa Race Massacre or what happened with Emmett Till until I was an adult. It's important to tell these stories so that it's in our consciousness that racism is embedded in our culture. And part of our mission is to bring people together, Black, white, Asian, Latino, and anyone of all different backgrounds, so that we can build community and heal from our past. Were you surprised by the uh, petition? Close to 12, 13,000 signatures already. So there seems to be an outpouring. It's peppered with false assumptions and misinformation, and it minimizes the composer's role in this. She had a huge part in the say and the outcome of what the opera would be. Claire Cross, the writer. Claire Cross is a longtime ally and activist, and she was in college in the South, I think it's Louisiana State University, when this happened. And she was horrified herself, but she lived in a dorm where her white dorm mates weren't even moved by this. And she was, she was so upset by it that she moved out of the dorm. And so this really sat with her and disturbed her for a long time, which is why she wrote the play upon which the opera is based back in 2013. Claire became friends with the Black composer Mary Watkins, and they have been working together for eight years to bring this together. And tell me about the composer. The composer Mary Watkins is a renowned Black composer who infuses the Black vernacular into this style of classical music, which has traditionally been the European form. She was a teenager at the time this happened, and so she too was very moved by this, which is why they started working together on this opera. A white woman should not be telling this story, that this story should be told by black people. And then the other thing was that money raised from it should go to the family, and no, you should not get that money. It was a co-collaboration between the white librettist and a black composer, so they worked together. One of the problems is everyone pounced on the white librettist and just minimized Mary Watkins' role in it. They work together on this, first of all. This is an art form. I don't know who's to say who can write about or who's allowed to create art about Black people or about white people or anyone. From our standpoint, we're trying to bring people together. And as far as where the funds will go, I do know that the money for this opera will be donated to the Emmett Till Legacy Foundation and toward the evolution of this opera. The calls to boycott the opera have raised the specter of cancel culture, the phenomenon of ignoring or shunning ideas by the public, usually through social media. Recently, books have been banned by school districts and laws passed prohibiting critical race theory, a college-level curriculum, from being taught in local schools. Former President Trump has railed against his banning on social media platforms. Liz Player says canceling is divisive and sets allies against each other. It was just so shocking to see how many people were so harsh with Claire Cost because she is a white woman involved. It was disturbing to me. Mary Watkins described how she was disturbed by it. 
because I believe that we need to come together and work on this together. And so this is a recent development. In 2013, when her play came out, there wasn't controversy then, but now somehow this just spirals out of control. A lot of misrepresentations, misinformation went out. And it's hard. It's hard to say anything because everything you say is dissected and people will just pull something out of context and then cancel you for something when she's been a lifelong activist. She's not one of these people that trying to profit or trying to turn this into entertainment. She was truly moved and she's an ally and someone who wants to work with us. Liz Player is founder and executive director of the Harlem Chambers Players. Publicist Nina Flowers adds the play's writer and composer do get to speak about events that affected their lives as well. The other thing to this is that Claire and Mary were, this happened, the Emmett Till murder happened in both their lifetimes. And Claire was a student during this time when he was murdered and it spurred a lot of her activism in her life and how she chose to move forward in her life's path. At that point, as an artist, when you look at it and from that way, it is her story to tell and Mary's story to tell as they were there and they had feelings from that and it influenced some of their life's work and some of their activism. Yeah, they do get to tell the story through their eyes, how they feel about it and that kind of thing because they were actually experienced it. A lot of times, unfortunately, with social media, as I said, there's a lack of context. Context is excluded because things are happening in such a real-time, rapid fashion. The one thing that art is supposed to do is supposed to invite conversation, and, and everyone is open to that, but once they've seen it, right? And no one's seen this yet. That's a part of it, too. Context and conversation, that's what art is about. Nina Flowers is publicist for the opera Emmett Till, a new American opera at John Jay College's Gerald W. Lynch Theater. It premieres March 23rd. Tickets are available online. You're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. On Wednesday, Mayor Eric Adams used a police academy news conference launching his gun-focused public safety unit to slam New Yorkers, he says, use their cell phones to record cops and get so close to the action, they create what he calls a dangerous environment. Stop being on top of my police officers while they're carrying out their jobs. That is not acceptable and it won't be tolerated. That is a very dangerous environment you are creating when you're on top of that officer who has an understanding of what he's doing at the time, yelling police brutality, yelling at the officer, calling them names. Now he has to worry about who's behind him. Is he part of the process that he's trying to de-escalate? That has gotten out of control. We're finding people who are standing on top of the officer while he's involved in a dangerous encounter. Not acceptable. It's not going to continue to happen. In 2014, cell phone footage of the chokehold death of Eric Garner on Staten Island went viral, sparking outrage and leading to calls around the country to reform police practices. Garner's friend, Ramsey Orta, recorded the incident on his cell phone, even as police pressured him to stop recording. Orta was later arrested on a warrant and sent to jail for several years. A circumstance, Orta says, was a result of police harassment after his video went viral. A video of George Floyd, recorded by bystanders in 2020, showed a former Minneapolis officer choking him for nine minutes. The video sparked months of worldwide protest. In another incident where security camera footage played a role, a black motorist was killed by an off-duty cop in Brooklyn five years ago. Although the cop remains on the force, his victim's family says they want Delron Small's memory 
to live on. So they're pressuring the city to name Bradford Street between Atlantic and Liberty Avenues in honor of the 37-year-old who was killed by off-duty NYPD officer Wayne Isaacs on July 4th, 2016, in front of Small's girlfriend, four-month-old child, and 14-year-old stepdaughter. Monifa Bandelli is a board member of Communities United for Police Reform Action. Since then, communities have been working with Delvon's sister and brother, Victoria Davis and Victor Davis, to bring justice for Delvon. They did have a trial. Wayne Isaacs was acquitted, unfortunately, but he also still remains on the police force. And so the family has a very active campaign to call for his firing from the NYPD. This summer, we're launching a campaign along with his sister, Victoria Davis, to co-name the street of Bradford between Atlantic Avenue and Liberty, because not only was Delron killed on Atlantic Avenue right there, he also grew up within those two blocks and has family that still lives there. So we want to honor his life and legacy by co-naming the block. This whole idea of uh, him cracking down on people who film, because you mentioned about how those cameras were the, told the truth that wouldn't have been known if it wasn't that they were there. Eric Garner, right? Mm-hmm. Also, Ramali Graham, a teenager in the Bronx, who police swore they had chased him into his house. And then the camera showed he actually was just walking in his house and had no idea. These police officers were running up behind him and would ultimately kill him. The video footage is what Eric Adams, the police department, the police unions are trying to actually crack down on. It's really not people doing cop watch. One of the first programs that we did in 2000 after the acquittal of the police officers that killed Amadou Diallo was community cop watch. You know, so this is something that we've been doing for a couple decades. We see it for what it is. Video footage has been exposing police violence. It's been exposing how often police officers lie on reports. I mean, it's almost, it's it's ridiculous. How do you feel that would actually play out? Already have found ourselves under attack for cop watch. You know, in 2005, three of our cop watchers were brutally arrested for cop watching. The danger is that now he's basically signaling to the police that he has their backs against cop watching. So again, just like this street crimes unit, very dangerous. Um, It is basically a signpost to them to say, you know, if you don't want people filming, you can stop them by saying it's too aggressive. I mean, what is aggressive filming? What's aggressive is the police, these arrests, you know, stop and frisk, which we sued. uh, We sued New York City about one of our members is Floyd in the Floyd versus New York City stop and frisk case. How does this play into the narrative of racial oppression in America, if at all? Or is it just cop violence? No, it's very important because what we've been saying all along, what our parents have been saying all along, is racism is systemic. That's why our calls to do everything from moving money out of the police force into public health is so key because it's not about one bad apple. It's not about replacing white people with black people. It's a systemic issue that perpetuates violence against black communities, and that is what we have to change. We need systems change. We need a full restructuring of our city budget. Monifa Bandelli is a board member of Communities United for Police Reform Action. And back to international news, the mounting criticism of Russia's behavior in Ukraine has been lost in the community of activists, political leaders, and warriors who fought with the training and support of the former Soviet Union to win their freedom from colonial domination. 
From Vietnam to Southern Africa and Central America, they came by the thousands to the former Soviet Union to learn everything from military tactics to diplomacy and political ideology. Ronnie Casrills is a South African politician and military commander. He was South Africa's intelligence minister and a member of the Central Committee of the African National Congress. He trained as a guerrilla fighter under Soviet auspices at a base in Crimea. He says today's Russia is not the Soviet Union and the incursion is a crime, but one forced on Russia by the United States. Casrills spoke with WBAI from Johannesburg, South Africa. Invasion of another country is a violation of international law and of the law of human rights. One must be categoric about condemning it. And I do so even though the South African government has been neutral in the sense of abstaining from a UN vote, along with another 17 African countries, by the way, as as we know. The issue of what had preceded this invasion by Putin is something that must be taken into account. We can't just ignore the fact that the machinations of the USA and of NATO were pushing Putin's Russia into a situation with the encroachment of NATO and the coup in the Ukraine that they supported the overthrow of an an elected government in, uh, in 2014 was going to lead to this kind of catastrophe. So that is something that I do take into account. Nevertheless, although one can really point a finger at the USA and NATO and the hypocrisy that's taking place, on a tremendous scale internationally. They don't move in relation to the plight of the Palestinian people under bombardment in Gaza over and over again from Israel, etc. Israel's invasions and attacks on neighboring Arab states, the Iraqi war, the Afghanistani war, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, and so on. I mean, it's absolutely unspeakable. But nevertheless, one cannot get away from the fact that the Russians have foregone diplomacy. Uh, We can show that they have attempted for the last eight years, that America has reneged on it and pushed Putin to take this, I would say, catastrophic step. And it's that invasion which I absolutely condemn. Whatever they're claiming about precision bombing just at military targets and at nests where neo-Nazis are, that um, absolutely you're going to find that civilian areas are bombed, that people are killed, that fear is put into the hearts of the whole people. We see the almost three million now, half of which are children, fleeing for their lives, and that humanitarian factor will set against Putin and Russian objectives of feeling that they can win the support of Ukrainian people when they talk about the brotherhood of Russians and Ukrainians. They're sitting there back, and I think that's catastrophic. ANC member Ronnie Casrell spoke with WBAI from Johannesburg, South Africa. Meanwhile, 
In her latest Washington Post column, Nation editorial director and publisher Katrina Vandenhuvel argues Russia's invasion of Ukraine threatens to drag the United States back into a world of wasting hundreds of billions of dollars on weapons we dare not use. Vandenhuvel has reported from Russia for over three decades. She spoke with WBAI. The breach of international law and aggression by Russia, and I have no illusions that Russia or Putin are liberal left-wing people. These are people who are upholding Putin, his team, very conventional, traditional, obsolete ideas, in my mind, of social justice. So there is no brief there, but there is a brief for finding peace as we can. The world is absolutely aghast at Americans' absolute hypocrisy on this. You're a hypocrite if you oppose the Iraq war, as the nation I did vigorously, but you don't oppose uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine. I mean, there's a history. We can talk about the history, which doesn't lead one to condone uh, the breach of international law, but does lead one to understand, perhaps, the provocations of these last years that may have contributed. But that, I think, is hypocritical to oppose war and then support a war because of different reasons. And I understand the uh, person you had was, you know, there's an anger. He said, this is not the Russia I knew, or, I mean, the Russia, there's, well. But also the United States is hypocrisy to criticize Russia when, you know, they have everything they criticize Russia about is a crime U.S. has committed in spades. Of course. And by the way, the media we have learned to see war in these last couple weeks. War, block by block, bombardments, bombing. Now, for most Americans, the, you know, the war is not on our TV screens or visible on our computers, and people have come to think of war as a drone video. So I think the commitment, if we want to have peace, is to end this war between Russia, Ukraine, NATO, the West, find a way out through diplomacy, and ensure that other wars are given attention so that we begin to understand the brutality, the violence of war and the senselessness of children killed, of women killed, of people killed, of elderly. And the money piece, well, not the money piece, but to reconstruct lives, to help displaced people. I mean, these budgets, these military budgets are insane. Biden and Washington just put up a billion dollars. I'm not saying it, you know, singling out Ukraine, but the but the defense budget, there seems to be a bipartisan militarism in Washington, which is not contributing to even an iota of thinking about what is peace. We think a lot about the costs of peace, but not the costs of war. We should think about the benefits of peace and not be so hard-headed and value this idea that someone's tough and hard-headed. Hard-headed means no new thinking. Nation editorial director and publisher Katrina Vanden Heuvel. And finally, today is the first day of spring, although you wouldn't know it, with New York under gray skies and 54 degrees, a distinct change after two days of warm sunshine. 
daylight was the issue in Congress this week. On Tuesday, the United States Senate passed legislation that would make daylight savings time permanent starting in 2023, ending the twice annual changing of the clocks. Called the Sunshine Protection Act, the measure was passed unanimously by voice vote. Neither the House or President Joe Biden have indicated if they support the bill. The National Association of Convenience Stores opposes the change, telling Congress this month we should not have kids going to school in the dark. Last Sunday, most of the United States resumed daylight saving time, springing ahead one hour. The United States will fall back to standard time in November. And that's some of the news for Sunday, March 20th, 2022. The news is produced by Linda Perry, our engineer is Max Schmid. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.